All right. Good morning. How are y'all? Good. That was a pretty good response. Uh, it is cool in here today, huh? Feels better. If you've been worshiping with us for a while, you know this is a big change. Usually walking up these four steps, I lose three pounds because it's so hot in here. Uh, so apparently a sinner went out of our midst or something, and now we're, I'm just kidding. Um, if you're listening on podcasts, we still love you, all right? But um, welcome. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, we are in our last week of our kind of long trek through John. And so uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been walking through this book and uh, we're now kind of coming to an end. In case you're wondering why we're actually ending on John chapter 13, and if you flip a couple pages over, you see there are a few more chapters left in John. Uh, a little over a year ago, we actually started the book of John, and we started in chapter 14, uh, and we were we're just kind of looking at Jesus's moment with his disciples. And so we went from 14 to 18. And then that Easter, we also essentially covered uh, chapters 19 through 21. And so uh, we did cover it, the back end of it. And then we started John 1 this fall. All right. And so there was nothing spiritual uh, about why we did that. We didn't do that on purpose, though I'm sure you can make something spiritual out of it. Like the last will become first. All right. There you go. See, didn't even take long. But if you've been with us for a while, you've actually walked through all of John with us. And so uh, this is the last chapter. I'm excited about it. Um, so let's actually dive right in. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We will be in John chapter 13. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Um, please take and keep that. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to have the word and to be able to read it. And so uh, make sure you hold on to that. Um, you can also follow along on your smartphone if you'd wish. If you have downloaded the Version app in the past, underneath the tab section, you can type in live. Type in the Well Austin. You'll be able to follow along there. There's notes, uh, places. There's poll questions, prayer requests, stuff like that. If you don't have that app, but you still want to follow along on your phone, you can type this link right into your browser, and you'll be able to follow along that way as well. All right? So um, there are many feelings in our lives that uh, sort of spark up the emotion of hurt or the pain that is associated with hurt. Um, some of it is just raw pain, like, right? like we actually physically get hurt. That begins to bring about the emotion of hurt, the, the physical pain of hurt in our lives, right? And so for example, this past week uh, playing basketball, I got stabbed in my eye and got like, cut into my eye, okay? Uh, it hurt really bad. Actually, I cannot see the left side of this room out of my peripheral right now. So if there's a week to fall asleep in church and you're over here, this is the week, all right? Um, I won't be able to see you. This side, tough luck, all right? Chose the wrong seat, but uh, it hurt really bad. Uh, actually, somebody in our community group uh, came over to watch Micaiah because I had to go to the ER because I literally couldn't see, and I was like crying, but not like a wimp crying, all right? It just, you know, like when you get hurt, tears just kind of flow out. But she probably thought I was dying because of the way I looked, okay? I don't handle pain well. But sometimes this physical pain actually brings about hurt in our lives, right? Sometimes emotional pain kind of brings about a whole lot of hurt or a whole lot of, of pain kind of deep down in our hearts, in our lives, right? Another very personal example is that this weekend, uh, my wife's mother uh, actually had a stroke. And so we were in Houston this whole weekend kind of with her and um, a lot of that, there's a lot of fear that gets brought up in that, right? Like what's going to happen? We don't know. There's a lot of emotional pain that kind of gets driven up and we see that through the family, right? There were many tears that were going on as her mom could not say any words. And so if you think about it, you can definitely be praying for Natalie's mother. Um, but I mean, there, there's emotional pain sometimes, like the pains that happen in our lives, 
right? After I began to tell people this, everybody that I knew said, man, my grandmother or my mom or, or my wife's, you know, uh, uh, brother had a stroke. And a lot of people experience different pain because of this world that we live in, this fallen world that we live in. And so there's physical pain, there's emotional pain, there's a sense of psychological pain sometimes with something like envy, you know, like you feel the, 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 the envy that kind of rises up against you. And it's kind of this mental thing where it kind of hurts when you want something that somebody else has, except you can't have it for whatever reason. Like maybe you really want this marriage or maybe you really want this job or you really want fill in the blank. And then there's a sense of pain that kind of comes along with that. You get frustrated, you get angry, you get bitter. There's hurt that kind of uh, uh, drives up into your heart. However, I would argue that far past the physical or even the emotional, uh, that towards the top of the pain that we can feel is the pain that we feel when we are betrayed. Betrayal tends to draw about almost more pain than almost anything else because, you know, uh, uh, physical pain hurts, but we're used to it, right? As we grow up, we know that, that pain will come. Emotional pain through death or through suffering, that's really unfortunate too, but unless it happens at an early age, you know, somebody loses their life before they're supposed to, we're kind of used to that. We know that we live in a world in which pain is experienced. But when we're betrayed by somebody close to us, that tends to spark up a ton of anger, of rage, of hurt, of frustration, of confusion. It sparks up all of these emotions that are within us, right? And so uh, being betrayed by somebody you trust hurts. TV and movie producers have actually caught on to this, right? Like if you watch almost any show, betrayal is almost always one of the things that gets embedded into that show. My wife and I, Natalie, we really enjoy watching 24. Don't judge me, all right? Uh, and we started a while ago, and we actually just this past week finished all eight seasons of 24. I won't tell you how long ago we started so that you won't judge me even more, all right? But we were watching it quite literally in every single season. Somebody betrays somebody else. Literally, in every single season, there is a moment of betrayal. Now, you would think that it would get old after a while, or that you would begin to get used to it. Like, I know somebody's going to betray somebody, but who? is it? Except every time the betrayal happens, what do you feel like? What? <laughs> right? You begin to look at them. I, I can't believe that that happened. And you get frustrated and I, I can't believe this. And it drives up emotion within you. You're not even in the show, but all of a sudden you feel like it, right? Like you feel like you have personally been betrayed and you get frustrated. It's, it's like, uh, I'll see those actors or actresses in other movies or shows and I still hate them. It's as if they have done something to me, right? Like, how dare you betray Jack Bauer? Do <laughs> you know? And I get frustrated. Um, and if you don't like 24, it's fine. If you watch any dramatic show, I bet you can think about a time where there's been betrayal. Maybe one of the new shows today, I don't watch any of those, but I'm sure that there's some betrayal somewhere in there, right? You can think about that. The reason why that's in there is because they know that betrayal sparks up something in our heart unlike almost anything else. See, they don't always put coveting in those shows, though they do sometimes. You want something, you can't have it, and so then, but not always. You know, they, they don't always put uh, some emotional uh, or physical affair between two people, but they almost always embed betrayal. And if they do have something, like an affair, it's always tied to the betrayal aspect of it, right? Like you betrayed somebody you're supposed to love. And so uh, the, there, there's a whole lot of betrayal that happens, and, and, and this is something that hurts us almost more than anything else. I remember a time in Natalie and I's life uh, where I betrayed her like no other and it brought her a whole lot of deep pain. 
Um, now, you probably thought you were about to get some juicy detail about our marriage. That's for a marriage sermon, all right? This is actually, we were playing a game, okay? So don't get too, I know some of you felt a little bit of fear there, but we were playing a game called Murder in the Dark. Uh, for those of you who don't know what that game is, I'm unsure if there could be a more horrible sounding game than that. Maybe if they called it Slaughter in the Dark, that would make it worse, right? But it sounds really intense. Essentially what it is, is uh, there's a bunch of people in a house and you turn off all the lights, all right? And there are two people that are murderers and uh, uh, they've been picked before the game by the dealing of cards. And so you walk around the house and it's kind of dark, but you can see just a little bit. And what you do is, is as you're walking around the house, when you walk past somebody, if you double tap them and you are a murderer, then that means that you've killed them. And what they have to do is they have to just sit on the floor and somebody else can come along and find them. And you have to figure out who the murderers are. So the, the 10 or 15 people that aren't murderers need to figure out who the two or three murderers are. All right. Well, I picked the, I got the murderer once and Natalie kind of partnered up with me. And so what a smart strategy is, is you kind of get close to someone because then you can vouch for them and they can vouch for you. So nobody can say, oh, I think that Natalie's the murderer. I can say, well, I've been with her the whole time. I've never seen her touch anybody, right? And so uh, once the lights come on, you got to try to figure this out. So Natalie and I are walking throughout the house and, and we're walking together. And every time somebody found a, a, a dead body, they say, we turn on the lights and then we have to figure out who's the murderer. And everybody was like, I think it's Tori. I saw him right around this person. I saw, and Natalie's like, I've been with him the whole time. And like, he's not, he's not. And she kept vouching and she started getting like really serious. And then at one point she said, I swear he's not. I promise that he's not. I've been with him the whole time and I know him well enough. We've been married long enough where I know he's not lying. All right. Now, what she doesn't know is I am 6'4". And so what would happen is, is as we'd walk past someone, you'd try to like hide your shoulder and then we'd walk past and I'd lead her in front of me and I'd reach back with my 6'4 length arms and touch them, all right? So at the very end of the game, it's me, her, and one other person left and we're all like, ooh, who is it? Who is it? And I walk over and I touch them on the shoulder and I turned and looked at Natalie and the face of horror that fell over her. I've never seen a face like that before in my life, okay? And she slapped me. She tried to slap me. Now, if you know my wife, you know that's a big thing, right? She doesn't do that. She got so emotional. The rest of the weekend, it was as if I had hurt her personally. She was so offended, right? Why? Because betrayal hurts even when it's just in a game, right? Now, you know I love that. If you know me, you know I love that moment, right? Um, but betrayal hurts, okay? Now, imagine being betrayed in a serious manner over and over and over and over again. Over and over again, you are betrayed. Some of you, unfortunately, because we do live in a fallen world, know this far too well. You're betrayed over and over again by somebody you love, say like a father. I know it's a lot of people's pain, right? Uh, you've been betrayed over and over again. Maybe he said that he would give up alcohol, but he just couldn't do it, right? Like he kept going back to it and it hurts you so deeply. Or maybe it was like even just a little promise. Like he promised he would take you to Disney World and he said that two or three or four times, but he never did. That hurts, Right now, this is just a little thing like going to Disney World, but usually when you sit down with people in counseling, as I do every week, those things come back up in their life and they don't even trust God anymore and his promises because their dad promised to take them to Disney World and he never did it. Something as small as that, or unfortunately, sometimes even worse. I know many people in here have experienced even worse pain from their father, even worse betrayal. He's supposed to comfort, love, and protect, and instead he uses or, or doesn't, or is just absent, not there. That hurts, right? Maybe it wasn't a dad, maybe he had great parents, but maybe a spouse, 
right? Like over and over again in one way or another, there's betrayal and you can feel your heart growing in distrust and you want to connect, but there's a sense of betrayal that's there and it's drawing a bridge between you and your, 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 your other, uh, your wife or your husband. Maybe it's a friend that's betrayed you. Right? Or maybe it's your boss that's betrayed you. He promised you a higher raise or he promised that you'd get this job and then at the last minute slid something under the desk right? where somebody else got it or you got laid off and he promised a job or whatever it may be. There's even the emotional feeling of betrayal where we may not have been betrayed personally, but we still feel it collectively as a group. One thing that's happening right now is in law enforcement. There's this whole push right now where collectively as a group, there's a whole culture of people where they feel this sense of betrayal and they don't know what to do with it because they're supposed to be trusted, but, but, but we're being shown that they can't always be trusted. And what do we do with that? And it's causing riots and anger and frustration, and rightly so. But this sense of betrayal really moves our emotions unlike almost anything else. Politicians, same thing. We vote, they promise, and then they fail, and we feel betrayed, and then we say things like, you just can't trust any politicians, none of them, right? Because we feel betrayed. We feel this sense of rejection. We tend to push away. And so it leads to distrust or to apathy or a multitude of mixed emotions that we don't really know what to do with. Many of you, actually, have even felt betrayed like that by God himself. You felt betrayed by God, right? Like you feel like he promised you something, but then didn't come through on that promise. Maybe you read something in scripture. Maybe you prayed really, really earnestly. You really asked God. You poured yourself out to him, and he didn't come through. And you feel as if God has actually betrayed you. How do you think the disciples felt when Jesus promised that he was the Messiah and then died? They probably felt a sense of betrayal almost. We thought he was the one, they said, We thought this was the one that came and was going to free us. And they're confused and they're trying to figure out what to do. It brought forth pain. It brought forth a mixture of emotion. And so I would guess that most of us in here have felt a pretty deep sense of betrayal in one way or another at some point in our life. And today, in case you can't tell, we're going to be talking about this, about betrayal. Okay, uh, as I've given multiple examples of this, what I actually have wanted to do is I've wanted to spark that sense of betrayal up in you. As I'm giving these examples, I actually hope that there was something in your own life where you thought, oh yeah, I've been betrayed in this way. And here's what I want you to do with that emotion, okay? Without question or doubt, the Lord does want us to forgive and we'll even see forgiveness through this text. But for the time being, I actually want you to hold on to that emotion, real quick. And I want you to begin to lay it over this text because here's what I know. So often we read scripture so sterilely, right? Like we read it as if it didn't actually happen, as if it's not a real story. Matter of fact, we read something like like Harry Potter or some classics with more emotion than we read scripture sometimes. But the feeling of betrayal can probably never be felt to a greater extent than it was felt here in this story. And so the feeling that you felt before, I want you to hold on to that and I want you to lay it over the text because it'll make this text make so much more sense once you see the betrayal that's happening and how Jesus responds to this, okay? So that's our backdrop for the story. John chapter 13, let's pick it up in verse 21. After saying these things... Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. So I want you to imagine the feeling for a moment, okay? This guy, Jesus, has been blessing your socks off for the past three years, 
right? Uh, he's loved you. He's, he's taught you. He's nurtured you. He's supported you. He's challenged you. What you kind of like, he's calling you to something greater than what you are in and of yourself. He's fed you. He's equipped you. He's shown you the Father. You want to see God. The, the, the Pharisees were trying to show you God. You couldn't see them. And then in comes Jesus and you see the Father. You begin to taste his love. You experience his grace. You see his mercy lived out. This is the man that is God dwelling amongst you, revealing who God is. And then he comes in and he drops this unbelievable news. One of you is going to betray me. Jesus just got done washing their feet in a manner of pure humility and a pure intimacy, right? A, a deep connection to the disciples, and then he drops this sentence. This is an intense moment. Now, once again, we have to place ourselves in this moment if this is actually going to make a whole lot of sense. If it's going to have the punch that it's supposed to have in our lives, we have to place ourselves in this moment. What would it feel like to be a disciple hearing this news? What would it feel like to be Jesus delivering this news, or even just to be a bystander, kind of someone off on the side and seeing this, and you know from a distance, what would this feel like? Because usually we read the story devoid of emotion, but then things don't make a whole lot of sense, actually, when we read this. But this is an intense, even a scary moment for the disciples. Now, the disciples at this moment, I would have to imagine, would be pretty unsure of what Jesus even meant by this statement. Truly, truly, one of you will betray me. How is this even possible? Okay? What they may have thought was, is somebody going to try to betray Jesus the way that Absalom tried to betray King David? Ultimately, though, Absalom ended up dying and David was still king. Is it going to be something like that, where somebody tries to usurp Christ or, or, or something like that? They may have actually even thought that the, while this sounds bad, it wasn't even really that threatening. Because I want you to think about what they've seen Jesus do. They've seen him still the raging seas right? They thought they were going to die. Jesus, save us. And he comes out and rebukes the winds and the waves, and it just stops. It just ceased to rain, ceased to be windy, ceased to have waves. Jesus had healed blind men. He had risen people up from the grave. They had just seen that this, this past week, even in this story, right? They were, within, they were within a month of them seeing Lazarus risen from the grave and them sitting down here at this table. They had just seen this. He had thwarted the wisest of men. He had fed 5,000. What could befall the son of man that he couldn't rectify? So maybe they didn't even take this threat as seriously as maybe Jesus meant it. We don't know, but there's gotta be emotion stirring up. We see this even in the next verse. Keep reading, verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, this is John, by the way. Um, John doesn't give his name, trying to uh, disappear kind of out of the story to fix our eyes on Jesus. So one of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him and to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, usually Peter is the babbling one, Right? Peter's usually the one that's talking a whole lot. I love my boy Peter because I'm a talker, right? And so Peter's always sitting there talking. Even he's shocked at this though. Even Peter doesn't open up his mouth here. Even Peter is kind of stunned in silence and instead of blurting out out loud, he actually just kind of motions to John and tries to get John's attention, right? Tries to say, hey, what's going on? Who is this? Right? And so I love Peter, but even he's silent. I'm trying to think of a situation in my own life where I would be silent. And unless I'm sick, I can't really think of one, all right? And I think that Peter's very similar. So the fact that he's silent, that's saying something, right? That's saying something. And so he kind of tries to get John's attention. Hey, you know, I don't know if he was like whispering a little bit. Hey, dog, ask who, all right? I don't, for some reason, I see Peter as the ghetto disciple, all right? I don't know why. 
I don't know why. For some reason, I see him like that. So he's getting John. Hey, ask who, ask who. Verse 26, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread that I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So the betrayer's identity now comes out. Now, ironically, to offer a special morsel at a dinner like this was actually a sign of great honor. You would actually give it to your most honored or your most distinguished guest. And so in, in, in a way, uh, every single commentary that I read this week said that at this moment, Jesus is offering him both friendship and forgiveness, still trying to draw Judas's heart into the crowd, still trying to help Judas not be a betrayer, still trying to allow Judas time to repent from what he's about to do. Jesus at this moment gives him one of the most special offerings, trying to draw forth unity. Right? He's offering repentance, not to betray the Son of Man. So what happens? Verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should go give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Now you may think, Man, are these dudes dumb? <laughs> like, didn't Jesus just say that who I give this to is going to betray them and then they're really confused? But uh, uh, that's probably not what's happening. What's probably happening here is, as we've been talking about, the table feast that is set up at the, the Last Supper is very different than what we are used to. And so I have a couple of pictures even to show that. So the first picture up here uh, is the famous painting, right? The Last Supper. And that's what we're used to when we look at uh, this uh, structure. But that's not what's going on. They didn't have tables like this. They didn't sit at chairs like this, not for special meals like the Supper like the Passover feast, which is what they are celebrating. And so this isn't what it looked like. In reality, the next painting shows us a little bit more realistic about what it probably looked like. It was a U. They were kind of sitting on the floor. Now, this author's decided not to paint the faces as much. It's not blurry, all right? But he just decided not. We don't know what the disciples look like, so he kind of left it blurred. But this gives us a good example. And so the most honored person, or Jesus, would be sitting right here. And this is likely John, the disciple. So what's actually likely happening is as John kind of lays his head back onto Jesus, he says, hey, who is it? And it's very likely that Jesus kind of whispered to John or said quietly, it's the one whom I give this morsel. And you know who's sitting at the most distinguished seat is Judas, right next to Jesus. And so it was easy to hand to him. Judas takes it and then dips it. And it says that Satan enters him. Now, there's this, there's this crazy dynamic here, right, where the other disciples may not have even known. Actually, Luke 22, which we're going to look at later, it says they were arguing about who the greatest of them was. <laughs> right? As the Son of Man just got done washing their feet, as he's offering them communion, trying to draw them in, they're arguing, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. No, look where Jesus sat me. <laughs> Right? And ironically, the most distinguished person was the one who would end up betraying him. And so there's two other quick notes here um, that, about this. So the disciples probably didn't hear what was going on. So they're not dumb. <laughs> All right. They just probably didn't hear. John was likely the only one that heard that. So two quick facts then about that is the fact that the disciples thought that they were going out to give money to the poor actually probably says that Jesus did this often. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that Jesus was himself poor, okay? So the Son of Man had no place to lay his head, 
right? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, son of man has no place to lay his head. We know that he struggled for food sometimes, that he was nothing to be admired amongst people, Isaiah 53 tells us, yet and still he's giving money to the poor, which makes this scene all that much more painful because he was a generous man to others and yet was about to be betrayed for a small fraction of money. The amount of money he was betrayed for in actuality was the same price that you would trade in an ox that had been uh, uh, marred in some way. So not even a good ox, an ox that had been marred, right? And so Jesus still is generous. The disciples are thinking he's acting out of generosity. Another note in verse 30 is that it doesn't just show that the time was evening when it says, and it was uh, night, but it actually is also showing the condition of the heart there. Okay, John is a descriptive person. He paints imagery for us a lot. He's more of an artist than a, than a historian, a fact teller. And so he's painting this beautiful story all throughout John. And frequently, uh, and, and we won't go back and look at these verses. You can write them down though. Uh, John chapter eight, verse 12, or John chapter three, verse 19. Over and over, uh, Jesus is saying, hey, I am the light of the world. Whoever comes to me will be in light. Whoever is not with me will actually dwell in darkness or will be in darkness. And so he paints this story all throughout John and then in comes Judas. So Jesus frequently alludes to this light and dark analogy and now we begin to see it take place. Judas exits the very presence of light out into the night, out into the darkness of his own soul. One of the commentators, Warren Wearsbury, says it like this. Judas was out in the night, controlled by the prince of darkness, Satan, But Jesus was in the light, sharing love and truth with his beloved disciples. What a contrast. And it's true too that we can become like Judas, right? Around the Lord, seeing him work frequently, feeling his presence amongst other believers, seeing him interact, yet ultimately reject Christ. Yet ultimately reject him. One commentator said it like this. Satan achieves his objectives in our lives by gradually redirecting our affections away from God. As we are led astray by cunning, his influence over us continues to increase, right? What is he saying? Satan isn't just like, hey, go uh, deliver Jesus over. One of the stories, though, says that Judas used to steal a little bit of money. He used to just take a little bit off the top before the disciples knew, right? Satan attempted him there. Boom, take a little bit off the top. And then there was another temptation and then another one. And then slowly but surely, we get to where he is now, the son of destruction, the son who uh, betrays the son of God, Judas, right? That's true in our own lives. Hey, just date this person. You want marriage so bad. Look, God's providing. I know, I know they're not a Christian, but no, 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 just, just date them, right? Hey, 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 just, just take a little bit here. Nobody will know. Hey, you don't need to fellowship right now. Right? And slowly but surely, he draws us away into the night. That's what happened to Judas here. He's being drawn away from the Lord into the night. Satan has fully captivated his heart now at this point. The last chance for repentance, he didn't repent. He kind of turned back away from the God. Now, all of a sudden, his heart's completely hardened. Keep reading verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. 
A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Bob talked about this some last week, so I'm not going to cover this a ton, but what a difference here right? What a difference. As soon as Judas exits, Jesus gives an extremely intimate, kind of a beautiful name to his disciples. He calls them little children. And he explains what is going to happen to them if they walk in love and if they love as he has loved to others. He explains, look, the kingdom is yours. You're going to have me. There's going to be intimacy. That word for little children there, Greek word technion, which is a very intimate expression for a little child. It's not just saying, hey, little kid, right? Like I do to some kids sometimes. That's not an intimate expression at all. Usually I'm like, hey, little kid, get away from me, right? It's not like that. What it is, is it's a very intimate expression. It's actually very similar to what I call Micaiah, my daughter. I call her precious often. And I don't call anybody else that, right? I'm not like, hey, Joey, you're precious, right? Like that doesn't happen, okay? There's an intimate expression between me and Micaiah that really only I have for her. And I hope that she feels the different type of word that I'm even using with her, that she feels that love. This is what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He's saying, hey, little children, there's a a preciousness to this, right? Even in a very beautiful foreshadow of one day how we will be with the Lord. Do you know that in Revelation, uh, I believe it's chapter 2, verse 17. Write that down, look it up later. It says that every single one of us who have faith in the Lord will one day get a new name that only us and God know. It's kind of like God's pet name toward us, if you will. He loves us so much that he's calling us something intimate that only us and him know. There's this beautiful intimacy that's found in Christ. And this is what this whole scene is trying to show. There's intimacy. I want you to fellowship. I want you to know me. I want you to be intimate and close. My friends, my brothers, I want you to be my disciples. And he's offering Judas this and he's offering them this and he's offering us this. That there be intimacy. He says, I just want you to follow me, to believe in me. Let's finish out verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, here we go. Peter's talking now, all right? The moment of shock is worn off. Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Really quick side note, he didn't say it to the Pharisees, okay? He said they can never come. To the disciples who end up believing in Jesus, he said, you will be able to come afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Pump the brakes. (laughs) All right. Once again, we usually read this devoid of context and devoid of emotion. But what did Jesus just tell Peter? Can I break it down in kind of a, a, a six word phrase? You are going to betray me. Deny, betray, right? Same context here. You, though I've loved you, though I've poured myself out, though you have seen the Son of Man, you are going to deny me. Three times, actually, before the rooster crows. How is Peter going to betray Jesus? Peter promises, I'll I'll die for you. Jesus said, "Will, will you really? You're actually going to betray me. And so Judas, the man of destruction, betrays Jesus. And we're used to that part of the story. And so we read it like that. But Peter, Peter is the the first bishop or or the first uh, uh, pastor. or The Catholics call Peter the first pope. Like Peter clearly has a really rich establishment in the history of the church. Peter too, like Judas, denies or betrays Jesus. 
So can I cut right to the point of the passage here and what this even means in our life? Judas denies, Peter denies. This means that you deny and I deny. I betray the Son of God. You betray the Son of God. Not just once, multiple times, as Peter did. You at some point in your life, likely multiple times, likely multiple times before you even came into the church this morning, betrayed the Son of God. You didn't show love to the brothers the way that Scripture commands you to. You didn't commune with him the way that he offers it to you. I'm offering to interact with you. And instead, there's other things in our mind. There's idols that are raising up in our heart. There's worries, there's concerns. We shift away from Jesus, right? You will deny him, deliver him over to death because of your selfishness and sin. Scripture says this is why Jesus had to come and die. Because we reject God, we deny God, we are sinful against a holy God. And Jesus had to die so that that sin could actually be brought to fulfillment or so it could be uh, paid in full so that we can have a relationship with him. And so we have denied Jesus. I know that over and over in my own life I've denied Jesus. When I act snarky toward my wife, you know, Last night there was a conflict because I, I had to come back home and I bought a Megabus pass and, and so we were going to go back on the Megabus. And then, and then uh, Micaiah was interacting with this really sick kid and we're going to North Carolina for my brother's wedding. And so Natalie was like, how about you bring Micaiah back? And I'm like, I got to prep for a sermon tomorrow, <laughs> right? And she's like, well, but we don't want Micaiah to be sick and flying. Now, granted, her mom just went through a whole lot of uh, 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 pain. Natalie's clearly in a lot of emotional pain. And what do I do? Act snarky. I guess I'll bring her back. <gasps> right? I guess I bring her back and I text her. She was crying the whole car ride home. Feel bad for me. <laughs> right? Except what does scripture command me to do as a husband? To sacrifice for my wife. Why? So that she could see Christ through me. Am I representing Jesus or am I betraying him? I'm betraying him. I'm betraying what he has given me the responsibility for in my marriage to show Christ to my wife, to represent her or him to her because I'm offended. Because there's a little bit of a, a mis, uh, 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 inconvenience in my life. I feel that when I know I should share the gospel, but I don't out of fear, passivity, apathy, out of fear of man, is usually my big one. Jesus commanded me to. I know it's my joy, but I have fear anyway. Feel that when I commit adultery against Jesus, usually cheating on him with his own bride, the church, thinking that the church is mine to control and manage and to try to fight through and instead of realizing Jesus already died for you. I don't have to. I should just be representing and so I won't spend time with Jesus to try to perfect the sermon a little bit more, whatever it may be. Look, this is all betraying Jesus. He commands us not to do this, and yet we do it anyway. And this is exactly what he died for. You and I have betrayed Jesus. This is why this, what I say at the start, is so important. Remember how I told you to hold on to the feeling of betrayal for a minute and to insect it and intertwine it into this text? Now begin to imagine what it felt like, the Son of God, what he felt like being betrayed over and over by his closest disciples, by his most trusted disciple. Peter, upon whom he would build the church, the first pastor is betraying him. Judas, this friend who he offers intimacy with and who he washes his feet is betraying him. Broken, sinful men betraying the Son of God over and over and over again. Could there be a deeper possible pain? 
one who is loved perfectly to have no love given in return, one who is sacrificed perfectly to have no sacrifice given to him. Shoot, before everything even happened, Peter's fallen asleep on him. He says, hey, can you just stay awake and pray? Please just stay awake. Too tired, right? He falls asleep. Betrayed over and over again. And do you know why when you watch a show like 24 or whatever, why betrayal hurts so bad? Why they actually draw, it's because the, the betrayal always happens to somebody that you trust, right? Like it's never just some random person kind of coming off the street and then betraying them. What happens is it's someone close, someone who you trust, there's intimacy. Could there be anyone closer to Jesus on earth than these men whom he's invested and poured out everything to? And they deny. Could there be anything closer than us and God? Isn't that what he died for? To draw us into deep intimacy, to draw us so that we can experience the Son of God. And yet we betray. This is deep pain on God's end, right? See, often we read emotion devoid with Jesus here too, right? We just think, well, he's God. As if Jesus didn't feel as if Jesus wasn't longing for Judas, when he comes back to Peter and he says, Peter, stay awake, man. And Peter doesn't stay awake. Jesus is hurting here, right? There's emotion. And so when you feel betrayed, it hurts and it's clear. And so we're sinful. We've betrayed the Lord in the past. We betrayed him probably in the present. We're going to betray him again in the future. And God is sinless, yet betrayed by the most faithful of people, you and me. And so my question today is, what's the difference? What's the difference between Judas and between Peter? How can we actually be more like Peter and less like Judas in our betrayal? Because here's the thing. Jesus prophesied that both would betray, right? Judas, you're going to betray me. Peter, you're going to betray me. He knew both of it. What does that mean for our life? He knows that you and I will sin against him. He knows that you and I will make mistakes. This is why he came and died. Because he knew that you would offend a holy God, that you would choose to interact against God, that you would try to go your own way, try to be your own God. This is exactly why Jesus came and died. He knows that. And so what's the difference here? What's the difference? He said that this would glorify him. Both Peter and Judas would glorify him, right? Said that there in verse 31 and in verse 32. He used that word glory multiple times there. The sentence almost doesn't even make sense he uses it so much. This will bring me glory. This will bring me glory, right? The difference is that one recognizes his guilt, recognizes that he was indeed a traitor against God, repented and believed and decided to follow Jesus while the other one ran away and hid. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. One repented, believed and followed God, the other ran away, hid, and ultimately led to his death. Both of them showed God glory. Both brought forth salvation to all men because the Son of Man was crucified for our sake. Yet there was a big difference. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter, 11, or, uh, chapter 7, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. It says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Do you see the difference there? Same Greek word for grief, all right? So there's no trickery happening here. Same word. 
One of them leads to repentance, salvation without regret. The other one leads to death. One runs away from God, one runs to God. Judas, much like Adam, runs away from God. Peter actually runs to God. In chapter 21, Jesus comes to restore Peter. And Peter goes and he interacts with Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you, you know I love you. He says, feed my sheep then. Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? And every time he says, Lord, yes, I cling back to you. Jesus actually said that Peter would then go and die in the same manner in which Jesus died. And church history tells us that Peter, being such a faithful disciple as he was being killed for believing in the Son of God, asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to die in the same manner in which his Lord had died. That's faithfulness. Peter recognized the difference and clung to Jesus. Now, Peter still made mistakes. In Galatians chapter two, Paul has to rebuke Peter for betraying Jesus again. He said, hey, you're not showing the Gentiles the way that Jesus actually loves them. And he rebukes them and then Peter repents and acts again. And so his life is a life of continual repentance. Wash, clean, sin, repent, wash, clean, sin, repent. This happens to be the life of the Christian frequently. I had to call my wife this morning, knowing that I was going to use that as an example. I'm really sorry, babe. I was mean last night. I shouldn't have did that, right? And not just because I had to, but I wanted to. I wanted to repent. I wanted to be washed clean. I want to look like Jesus. In that moment, I didn't, but he offers me forgiveness. He offers me cleansing. He offers me unity. He offers you cleansing and repentance and unity, but I know when you sin, you tend to run away from God. Don't do that, friends. Don't do that. Do you know the love of the Savior that you have? Do you know the love of the Savior that you have? That he would die for you and I. Knowing that we would sin. Haven't some of you sinned purposely against the Lord? Like you know what you're doing is wrong and you do it anyway. And in that moment, I know it's so hard to feel like you can run back to God. Look, Jesus here is showing even to Judas, you can come to me. I offer you friendship. I offer you washing. I want you to come to me. And so for some of you, you've actually never come to Jesus at all. You've been running away from God over and over and over again. And for whatever reason today, God brought you into this church I would invite you, Jesus offers you friendship. Jesus offers you love, joy, peace, everything the disciples experienced. The reason that they all went on and died for Jesus, all of them being martyred for him, is because of what they experienced with him. Jesus offers that to you. Don't run away from him. Run toward him. But for many of us Christians, we do the same thing. We know that God forgives, but, but we, don't, we don't actually know that. And so intellectually, we say, yeah, God forgives all of our sins. But then in our hearts, we tend to run away from him in our struggles. Don't do that. Run to the Lord. Look, he knew these men were going to sin. He knows that you were going to sin, and he died for you anyway. And invites you to commune back with him. This is the message of the book of John. We start off in John chapter 1, and in John chapter 21, it ends saying, Jesus loves you and died for you so that you can know him, run to him, 
If it sounds like we're preaching the same thing every week, it's because that's what the text says every week, right? I love you, I love you, I love you. Little children, this intimate expression, come to me. Would you run to Jesus? Please run to Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you for being a good God, for being a God who loves us despite our mistakes, despite our shortcomings, our failures. God, would you help us to run to you over and over and over and over again, God? That's what I ask. Thank you for the book of John. Thank you for showing us how much you love us. Jesus, would you help us to experience this in our own lives and run to you, Christ? Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would convict us of our sin and let us run back to you, God. I pray that you would challenge some of us who don't know you and say, hey, it's okay. I accept you anyway. I died for you so that you can know me. God, would you even right now, do a work in our hearts so that for the first time or for the 5,000th time, we can believe in you again and we can cling to you again and say, Jesus, I trust you. I am sorry. I betray you, but I want you. And then we would be like Peter and run back to you, though we deny. God, I love you. I praise things in your precious name. Amen.